Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. I am your host, Jensen Beeler from Asphalt and Rubber, and we are doing another World Superbike special show for you. So that means we've got the man, the myth, the legend, Superbike Steve, Mr. Steve English. It's quite the intro you've given me there, gents, but uh, good good to be back on the show. And uh, as you said, another World SBK show and we've got quite a lot to cover actually because we're taking into account a lot of the stuff that you got whenever we were down at Laguna Seca last month. Yeah, we're going to take a little bit of a, uh, a trip back in time. I went around the Laguna Seca paddock and had a chat with a number of the riders, mostly about things that have been going on in the season uh, so far, taking a look kind of at what the next half of the season is going to look like and then maybe what the 2019 uh, championship is shaping up to be so yeah and uh, should complement nicely with what we did probably five six weeks ago whenever we looked at the season just up until the halfway stage of the year so at Laguna we managed to as you said Jensen talk to four or five riders and uh, there was a lot of interesting little tidbits that you managed to get from them as well so it'll be interesting just to listen to what the riders had to say and then have a chat about it yeah uh, Steve I think we should start off with Mr. Tom Sykes when the World Superbike Paddock reconvenes I'm hoping that we're going to hear where he'll be racing next year. He's kind of the the big linchpin in the silly season rider lineup. So um, let's have a talk with Tom, and then we'll come back and discuss what he said. Tom, thanks for joining me here in Laguna Seca. If you could describe the season so far for yourself in one word, what would it be? Um, disappointing. You know, that that's pretty much what it is, disappointing. I'm, I'm capable of far much more, but... In this moment, I'm unable to deliver my potential for a number of reasons, and people are always welcome to judge, but um, at the end of the day, I know I've got the minerals required to win races and ultimately a championship, and um, my target is to work on this for the future. Is that something you can do here at Kawasaki, or do you need a bigger change than that? Yeah, who knows? The world obviously holds many... Uh, the future holds many, many possibilities, and... Um, in this moment, you know, Jonathan has got a great uh, relationship and level of trust inside Kawasaki. And, um, you know, at this moment, things are falling his way all the time. So, you know, it's absolutely fantastic for him. He's got definitely getting the best out of the bike and the best out of himself. And for this, you know, maybe we need to look elsewhere because uh, there's one thing sure for myself is that I'm capable of much more and, uh, you know, my target is to uh, is to do what I like to do and win races and, and fight for the World Championship. We've certainly, speed is not the problem, so we'll, um, we'll look to try and uh, find a way of releasing that in the future. When you're on the Kawasaki, where, where do you see as being the strengths and what do you see as being the weaknesses of the bike? With the Kawasaki? Yeah. Um, Strengths, again, I think it's just consistent. You know, the, the package seems to be consistent over a season. It's good in, in most areas of the track, but um, unfortunately for me, it's um, I struggle with one aspect and, um, you know, without going into too much detail, it's hard for me to overcome that because um, the way Jonathan manages the bike is, is quite a long way from, from where I would expect to... Um, to manage it so uh, yeah disappointing but um, I've bounced back from a lot worse how would you describe the Kawasaki from when you first came into the team and first started riding it and how has it changed to the point where it is now what's the evolution been like 
Yeah, it, do you know what? They've done a, a lot in these years. You know, when, when I first joined the team, it was very fast. It was very quick to change direction. And, you know, that's when I had an incredible few years on the bike. And then, obviously, um, development, technical regulations have, have gone back to where we start from, you know. So it's very, very interesting. It's when, when I, you know, get a quiet moment to myself and... Um, you know, drink a nice large coffee and really reflect on on the last few years. It's, it's very, very easy for me to see where we've come from, where we've got to and uh, why I'm struggling. So um, interesting. And uh, like I said, the good thing is I understand this and that's why I think um, the future can, can be stronger for me. How do you want to finish the season out and, and what tracks do you see being strong places for you to have good results? Uh, do you know what? I, I've won it pretty much every circuit and there's no reason why I can't win um, the obvious the obvious um, thing at the moment is that me and the bike aren't getting the best from each other so we'll see but in an ideal world there's no reason why I can't turn up and uh, and uh, win races at, at every every piece of time I can race on we'll be cheering for you hey appreciate it cheers thanks Tom no problem thank you alright Steve some some interesting things there from, from Tom um I think the one that you and I are both going to pick up the most on is the word disappointing. Uh, it's obvious to see kind of the um, disparagement in, in Tom's voice when he talks about Kawasaki. Obviously, it's been a, a tumultuous few months between him and, and Team Green. A lot of things were said in the media, and um, it kind of culminated in uh, an announcement that they wouldn't be working together next year. And now we're trying to wait and see where he goes to next. Can, can you frame a little bit from the, the paddock perspective on where that relationship started to deteriorate and, and kind of what happened for, for those that haven't been following the series? Well, as you said, Jensen, one of the key words in your interview with Tom was the word disappointing. And if you think back to Laguna, that was whenever we just had the announcement or we were just about to have the announcement that Tom was going to leave Kawasaki. And uh, on the Thursday at Laguna is when he was actually told by Kawasaki that they'd be looking elsewhere for next year. And as you said, a few years ago, you never would have envisioned a situation where Tom Sykes was being left on the sidelines by Kawasaki. But it has been a disappointment over the last few years. Since Jonathan Ray joined the team, the direction within Kawasaki has moved towards the other side of the pit box. The development that uh, Tom and Marcel Dwinker had been doing for the bike seemed to shift towards Jonathan's style a little bit more and Tom's just find, found himself more and more isolated from one thing or another over the last few years. The regulation changes have worked against him. They've favoured Jonathan Ray. And uh, the one thing about, about it that we've seen over the course of the last few years, particularly within the paddock, is that Jonathan can ride pretty much any bike. He's able to find a way to get the most performance from the bike. All the regulation changes over the course of the last few years have made it more and more difficult for Tom Sykes to ride the Kawasaki, whereas Jonathan Ray is able to adapt to it. And if you think back to when we talked at the Suzuka show about Jonathan Ray and Parariba, Parariba says the whole time that Jonathan is the most adaptable rider on the world SBK grid. Tom Sykes isn't adaptable. Tom Sykes has a very defined riding style. When you talk to Marcel, when you talk to people within the team, they've tried to get Tom to change his riding style, to bring it more in line with what Jonathan Ray does, to make it less of an extreme riding style, and Tom just can't seem to do that. So that's one of the main reasons why Tom suddenly found himself 
disp- uh, dispensable. It's interesting listening to him talk about the the Kawasaki that was and the Kawasaki that is, and and you go back to you know Tom Sykes, Mister Superpole, and he's you know. Uh, he was a real force on that Kawasaki, and then you kind of watched it taper off. And I think it's fair to to lay some of that blame at Jonathan Ray's feet, if you if you want to call it that. Um, it, it clearly has had a huge effect on Tom's ability to to ride that bike from um, like a racing point of view. But I think there's also a mental aspect to that as well, don't you think? Yeah, well, I think if you were to look at it, Tom Sykes, as you said, Jensen, Mr. Superpole, he's at 46 Superpoles. He's he's at 34 wins in World SBK. And if you think about the number of riders that have won more races than Tom, it's a pretty small number. But unfortunately for him, Jonathan Ray's just been doing all that winning in the last couple of years. Like Tom's basically only trading the likes of Haga, Bayless, Foggy and uh, Jonathan Ray. When it comes to statistics over the years, he's been a top five, top uh, three rider in the world championship since 2012. He's got the job done in a lot of ways, but once you come in and your teammate is doing a better job than you, it doesn't really matter what you've done in the past. Tom had a bike in the past that really suited his style, but you could argue at this point in time, just by virtue of what we've seen Jonathan Ray do, he didn't have a teammate that uh, could take the fight to him. He, he was up against inexperienced riders, whether it was Lars Baz, whether it was um, Juan Lascorse or any other riders that were on the Kawasaki's over the last few years. Jonathan Ray was the first rider that came in having ridden other bikes, had plenty of experience in the world SBK paddock, and suddenly we were able to see, arguably, exactly what the Kawasaki could do. Jonathan Ray has been able to dominate, whereas even though Tom Sykes was always fighting for those championships, he only won one world championship, even though the Kawasaki was arguably the best bike on the grid since 2012. Steve, I know there's a lot of speculation about where Tom will end up racing next year, and I don't know how much of that I want to get into, but I am kind of curious from your perspective, what would be the ideal ride for you? What would be the ideal team to slot Tom Sykes into where um, their organization is going to be able to take advantage of his of his talent and his specific unique skills and, and complement kind of his, his riding philosophy and and way about doing business and and then you know obviously compliment him with a strong machine as well but i think it's one of those questions that uh, it depends on what way you look at it um tom sykes is still one of the best riders in the world sbk paddock but can he get himself onto a bike that can actually win a championship next year or can he help a team develop a bike to make that next step forward the yamaha won't suit tom's riding style the Aprilia, we don't know if it'll be on the grid. We don't know what team it'll be with next year. Ducati have a brand new V4. Tom's got a very distinctive riding style. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing with the new V4? The BMW is such a unique bike, but there's a new BMW out next year as well. Personally, I think Tom's probably the best opportunity that he'll have next year would be probably to go to what is the Milwaukee Aprilia team right now, the Sean Muir racing team, because they could be running a Ducati, they could be running a BMW next year, and maybe he'll be that focal point for the team that uh, he could be able to make a big step forward for those bikes. But Tom right now, he's in that, uh, that, that terrible position for any rider where he doesn't have momentum behind him. He's had a few years where we've seen his teammate do a much better job than him, so even though Tom's been able to win races the last few years, even though he's still been on the podium more times than not, is he a rider that teams 
really want to hang their hat on? That's going to be one of the big questions whenever World SBK rejoins in September. Do you think any teams look at Tom's results and say that's a product of being inside the Kawasaki racing team, one of the best funded teams in World Superbike with one of the most competitive bikes on the grid and maybe discount his his riding skills? Or do they see the value in both? It's very difficult to look at Tom's results over the last four years and not look at it and think he's been beaten by a better rider as his teammate. And it doesn't matter to teams whether or not Jonathan Ray is the best world SBK rider of all time. He's statistically going to be the best rider of all time. But that doesn't really matter to a team because they'll just look at it and see he was so much better than his teammate. And uh, that's what one of the biggest problems for Tom is. Wherever he goes after next after this season, he needs to rebuild his career because his reputation has taken such a battering just by virtue of being Jonathan's teammate. Now, some of that is self-inflicted with Tom as well, because if you think back over the last three, three and a half years, how many times has Tom really gone toe-to-toe with Jonathan Ray and actually given him a, a proper fight? You'd probably think probably half a dozen times. You know, if you look to this season, there was Bruno, obviously, where they came close, where they came together in Bruno, and uh, Ray came off second best in his crash. But there hasn't been too many times where they've been in a toe-to-toe battle, and it's been Jonathan that's come off second best. We've typically seen it where it's Tom that seeded the positions. If you think back even to 2016 at at uh, Mizano, Tom had a great chance to beat Jonathan Ray. And never even attempted to make an overtaking move on him. Now that he's looking for a ride, obviously he's changing how he's going to approach his battles with Jonathan. But until he really wins those toe-to-toe fights, teams would look at it and think, you know what, maybe we'd be better off with a younger rider on our bike or a different rider on our bike. You're going to have a lot of riders that uh, are in play for rides for next season. And maybe they'll look at it and say, Tom's just not that attractive to some teams. No, I think you're absolutely right in, in your description of how next season is going to be so pivotal to, to Tom's future career. It's it's a make-or-break moment for him, I think. Um, you look at the World Superbike paddock, is already starting to see an influx of kind of XGP racers coming over. We have Alvaro Bautista, who's in the running for a Ducati seat. Um, and there's there's some riders that have been in World Superbike a little too long, maybe, that might be pushed out and it's very easy to be on that list with with a single bad season and lose that momentum yeah the biggest problem in racing for any rider is that perception becomes reality very quickly and even if you've got someone like tom sykes that has you know over 30 wins in the championship he's a former world champion he has all those pole positions everyone knows that if tom has the right bike underneath him that he's still one of the top two three riders in the world but the perception becomes the reality very quickly. And that's where even if Tom is one of those riders that can win a load of races for you, he hasn't done it over the last few years. So the reality becomes Tom just isn't quite at the same level he was in the past. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, looking at the the inverse of that problem um, would be the the two Yamaha riders. We're seeing the Pata Yamaha team uh, really develop and, and become one of the stronger teams in the paddock. I, I think still think, and I think you would agree with me here, they're a step behind Kawasaki and Ducati, but I think they're also a step above everyone else, and they're in this kind of uh, transition point from an, being an also-ran to a typical podium uh, finisher, and, and maybe next season a uh, you know, race-wing contender. Uh, at Laguna, I got a chance to talk to, to Alex Lowe's, so um, why don't we play that audio, Steve, and then we'll come back and talk about the, uh, the rise of the Yamahas, as it were. 
Alex, we're here at Laguna Seca. Thank you for taking time to talk to us. This has been a real uh, turning point for you in the last few rounds with uh, the Yamaha and, and that package. Yeah, the the back end of the last year was quite strong with a few podiums. But this uh, this winter, we made some good steps with the bike, and now I've managed to get my first win. Mark has obviously got his first wins, and, and Yamaha's first wins with, with this model of R1 in Superbike. So, yeah, we're making good progress. Um, it's nice to, to come to Laguna and be strong because it's a track that's been really tough for us in the past but honestly I'm, I'm really enjoying my riding I'm enjoying working with the guys we're, we're improving all the time and yeah, it's just good fun to to be a part of a project that we can see that's in, improving and going forward what do you think it's been that's allowed you to make this next step um, from my side just a bit of experience and, and and always trying to look to improve but from the bike side we've had some pretty big changes from the electronic side since last year which has allowed the allowed us to run the chassis quite a little bit different and and ride the bike in slightly different way and it seems to be a lot more positive and you know at races where the temperature gets up we seem to not struggle as much as last year as well so yeah it's uh, it's promising and like i said we just need to to keep keep at it now and keep trying to improve further are there tracks looking down the calendar that you kind of earmarked for victory? Yeah, to be honest, this weekend was was our, after Bruno when I managed to get the win. This weekend was the toughest one. All the all the races from now till the end of the year, I believe we have a chance every weekend. Mizano, Portimao, Manico, Qatar. I think we have a genuine genuine chance, and uh, that's what we're going to be trying to do. What is it about Laguna Seca that was so challenging where you thought it'd be difficult here? Uh, to be honest, I don't really know. I really enjoy this track. I enjoy riding it. I think that it's uh, it's quite a, a peculiar track that you you need to you need to have the bike working and, and feeling right because it's so tight and twisty. There's no time to rest. So if you're a little bit off and you haven't quite got the setting right in a few areas, you can mount up to to losing three or four tenths, which around here seems to be quite a lot. So, like I said, the electronics are working better this year, and we've made really made a step on corner entry. Which at this track, it's all about getting off the corner. But if you can't get into the corner, then you exits are always a lot worse I think that's what we struggled with in the past but and this weekend it was a lot stronger it was really competitive and yeah it was it was a good weekend what are the strengths and the weaknesses of the Yamaha where do you see you making the most time on the other competitors and where are you where are you losing out the most yeah the strength of the bike are it's handling how it turns especially in long corners the bike really you know, turns better than the other guys and and now we've made a good step in the in the entry we still need to work picking the gas up and and trying to drive off the corner especially the slower corners we're, we're we're trying to work at getting the combination between the you know the getting the power down and the grip and the bike wheeling and, and things like that because once the bike's up and going in third fourth fifth gear we've got a really strong engine as well so yeah it's um it's all there we just need to piece it all together and keep chipping away i think i know the answer to this question but what's the good victory or a good earmark or a benchmark for the end of the season for you what's your end of the season goal my goal is to be top three in the championship and, and and try and win some more races so that's my goal i think we can achieve it and yeah it'd be good great well thanks a lot appreciate it cheers guys thank you you know steve it's interesting to hear alex talk about wanting to be uh, the top three in the championship do you think that's a realistic goal I think when Alex talked to you prior to race one at Laguna, it was a realistic goal. But since then, probably isn't a realistic goal. If you look at how the results have played out at Laguna and also at Misano, he's probably given himself a little bit too much ground to make up after what happened in Italy. Uh, Lowe's finds himself sixth in the World Championship. He's level on points with Marco Melandri in fifth. But uh, he's got to make up, I think it's 25 points on Tom Sykes in front of him. And then it's another... 30 points on Vandermark. So he's probably got a little bit too much ground to make up on his teammate to try and beat him in the championship this year. But the interesting thing for Yamaha is they've made enough 
progress through this season that at one point it was actually realistic for those to say top three. Van der Mark very much is in play for top three in the World Championship and both Yamaha riders should be in play for more race wins through the season and that's one of the interesting things for that team through this year is really that they've gone from where if you were to think probably at the start of last season if Yamaha were to win a race you would have thought they probably backed into winning those races. Now Yamaha actually go to pretty much every race with the expectation that they should be able to fight for victories. When Van der Mark won in Donington Park he dominated at Donington. When Lowe's won at Brno, it was a hard-fought race when he didn't back into it. He didn't have, you know, bad weather or anything like that. It was a proper race victory. And that really is the sign of what Yamaha have been doing lately. Yeah, no, I think we've definitely seen them take a step. And they're legitimate podium contenders on on any race weekend. Um, Since the recording of of our conversation with Alex and to now, we've seen Potty Yamaha renew the contracts uh, of Michael and Alex. And I think that's a really smart move on their behalf, especially as the team is still trying to develop the the R1 into a race-winning package. And that's kind of like one of these kind of philosophies I have in racing in general, where sticking with the same riders and the same team has tremendous benefits in, in the development process because I don't know if it's consistency or just the time that it can take to hone a rider's style into the machine and, and the machine into the rider's style. Um, doesn't necessarily happen in just one season. Uh, I look at the MotoGP paddock for um, Andrea Davizioso to be a great example of this with the Ducati, someone that spent a lot of time with some really difficult seasons on the Italian brand's bike, but it's paid off uh, in big dividends for him by basically making him a championship contender. And he wasn't really a rider that we consider a, a championship contender in, in most situations. So uh, I think having uh, the Yamaha factory team kind of st- keep the status quo for 2019 i think it's gonna pay off huge dividends for them what about you yeah well i think it sort of comes back to what we were talking about with tom sykes only a couple of minutes ago as well jensen that's where if you're a yamaha does hiring tom sykes suddenly make you you know a world championship winning team probably not but keeping lowe's and vandermark allows them to continue to develop that bike build up both riders and maybe in you know a year two years time then be able to fight for a world championship at every round, 26 races, and be able to take on Jonathan Ray. I think Yamaha's in a position where they've probably got the... There isn't that much of a difference between their bike and the Kawasaki and the Ducati now. They've made a lot of progress, and I don't see how putting the likes of Sykes onto that bike or a Marco Melandri suddenly would make them make that extra step. Keeping Lowe's and Van der Mark made a lot of sense. They're two of the best younger riders in the paddock like uh, van der mark is 24 i think Lowe's is 27 so they're two young riders that still have plenty of experience behind them that if yamaha make that next step forward they'll be perfectly placed to do that and the the one thing that's quite interesting about both those riders is if you look at what happens whenever they get themselves into a position to win races whether it's at suzuka whether it's in world sbk they've taken those opportunities this year van der mark took both race victories at Donington Park. He could have had another couple of race wins as well. If you think back to Assen and Mizano, he put himself into a position, finished on the podium in those races. He's shown that he's made a huge step forward over the course of the last couple of, the last year. And uh, Lowe's has also shown that he's made a step forward, considering that uh, Lowe's had to bring in a new crew chief for this year. That was also another thing that uh, showed the progress that Yamaha have been able to make, because Andrew Pitt has been able to fit in pretty well 
right from the outset and now they're in a position where maybe for the final four rounds able to make a little bit more progress again and build themselves up for a championship charge next season because that's probably the the real target for Lowe's and Vandermark. Use these final four races of the year to click tick your boxes for the 2018 season. For Vandermark, that's finishing in the top three in the championship, maybe winning another race. For Lowe's, he needs to finish inside that top four or five. And that really becomes their goal for these final eight races of the year before then looking to use that momentum through the winter testing and then on to next season. Steve, looking down the, the lineup a little bit, going to the GRT Yamaha t- squad, uh, who, who would you place there? Who do you think would be a good fit for this kind of junior junior team, as it were? Well, it looks quite possible that uh, you'll have Marco Melandri on the bike. That's been the one the one thing that we've all heard over the course of the last couple of months. But I've also heard that uh, GRT are struggling a little bit to raise the finances for next season. So need to find an extra sponsor. Is Melandry going to be able to bring a sponsor with him? You'd imagine that they'll be able to find some solution to that. Melandry should be on one of those bikes next year. One of the interesting rumours I heard whenever I was over at Brno for the MotoGP race was Cameron Bobier on the second bike, which obviously would be great for American fans. But uh, is Bobier actually going to leave Moto America? I'd be doubtful about it. But and until he signs a contract, I'd be more in line with him staying in America. But it's definitely something that I'll be digging into whenever I go to Portimao for the test next week, just to see if there is any legs to Cameron Bobia getting that second seat. Yeah, I do know looking at the Moto America paddock that we've got a little bit of a log jam and Cameron's kind of at the front of it. Uh, if you look at Yamaha's program in Moto America, they've got two great super sport riders that have kind of been languishing in that class and are ready for the step up to the, the leader bike series. And there's just nowhere for them to go. So there is this need in the Moto America championship to make it a gateway into the international level of the sport. There needs to be a ladder out of winning the Moto America Superbike Championship into a seat in the World Superbike Championship, ideally on a factory team. And for the series, I think almost in a way for both series, that needs to happen. So there might be some good political pressure to to kind of bump Cameron into uh, the next level. Whether or not that can happen, I think it remains to be seen, but I'd love to see J.D. Beach on a Superbike. I know that. I think everyone wants to see J.D. Beach on a Superbike. But I, what was interesting for me was whenever I was over in Brno and I was asking around about the Bobia story, the one thing that, that I did hear was that Wayne Rainey has apparently said to Bobia, do you want to be a world champion? Because if you want to be a world champion, racing in Moto America is never going to make you a world champion. It's Bobia's property at the point where it's piss or get off the pot and he really needs to make the move from Moto America. Otherwise... He will just be an American superbike rider for the rest of his career, which is fine. He's making good money doing that. But he's such a talented rider that everyone wants to see what he can do in World SBK. And this is the best opportunity he's ever going to get presented with to make that move. Well, here's an anecdote, Stephen. Maybe this is the answer. When we have conversations about the greatest of all time in terms of superbike riders, how often do you hear Matt Mladen's name come up? The only time the only the only time you hear Matt Maladin's name mentioned is whenever people talk about Ben Spees beating Matt Maladin or Ben Spees fighting with Matt Maladin. And the problem for a Maladin, the problem now for Bobier, the problem for so many riders in British superbikes is you can make good money racing in a national championship. 
you can win a lot of races, you can be highly regarded, you're a big fish in a small pond, but until you actually make the move to the World Championship, nobody really knows the level. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, too, if you looked at, um, if we fast forward five years from now or 10 years from now or whatever that, that length of time is for, for Cameron's career to, to, to wane, and if we look back on it, you know, we would look back on it in a way like, okay, yeah, you won a bunch of Moto America Superbike Championships, but who were you racing against? Who who was the quality talent that that made you have to rise to the top? Who were the other teams that were challenging you for race wins? Because truthfully, the American Championship for a long time has been the the Yamaha Cup. Yamaha has been the only team really coming in with a, with a serious budget, and it's really whoever is the top rider at Yamaha is going to win the championship. We saw that with Josh Hayes. We've seen that with Cameron Bobier. Uh, not to take any way anything from them as riders. I think they're fantastic riders, but there wasn't really a response. Now we have Suzuki kind of coming in and and showing a, a similar budget, but um, you know it's not like the field is 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 very deep and there's a a real competition going on there, and and that's not a legacy that you want to have. The biggest problem that you have in Moto America is you did have someone like Josh Hayes that's 42, 43 years of age. And it's the exact same situation as Shaky Byrne in the UK, the same age, that they're good riders. They're riders that would be fit to race in any class over the course of the last few years, the last 15, 20 years. But because they stayed in those championships, they also stayed on a good bike in those championships. And they made sure that the likes of whether it's you mentioned J.D. Beach already, Garrett Gerloff as well, good riders that had to stay in the Supersport class, arguably a year in Gerloff's case, or for J.D. Beach, a couple of years too long, and it suddenly means that there isn't a good seat for them to move on to on a superbike, so they have to stay in a supersport class, and then if you get onto a superbike, you need to be on either a Yosh Suzuki, or you need to be on a Graves Yamaha. Now, obviously, we've just heard that, you know, Roger Hayden's going to announce, has announced his retirement. That opens right. up a Suzuki seat. With a bit of luck, that means that there can be some transitions being made in the Moto America paddock, but you need Cameron Bobier to make the step. I remember when Ben Spees retired, the one of the first questions I asked Ben after he had confirmed he wasn't going to come back, I did an interview with him, one of the first questions I asked him was, who's the next Ben Spees? Five years ago, the answer from everyone was Cameron Bobier. It was, We're still waiting it was. to know what Cameron can do. Yeah. No, I think that's that's the nail on the head right there, and that... That was probably the time that, that Cameron needed to start making the transition. Um, unfortunately, I don't know if the World Superbike Championship was ready, for, or sorry, if the Moto America Championship was ready for that. But now is the time. This is this is really kind of make it or break it for, for Cameron. If he doesn't make that step up to, to World Superbike, I do think the rest of his career is in Moto America. And then we'll start talking about maybe J.D. Beach needs to move up to World Superbike or, or Garrett Gerloff or, you know, name name the next upcoming American, young American talent. Well, I think one of the interesting things is we, we're talking about Cameron Bobier. Obviously, Bobier is a multiple Moto America champion, consistent front runner over the years. We have a guy that made the move from Moto America to World SBK this year in Jake Gagne. And uh, Gagne is not at the same level as Bobier. We've seen that over the years in Moto America because Gagne didn't have a Graves Yamaha. He didn't have a good bike that really taught him how to ride a superbike. He had a Honda Fireblade that was effectively a super stock bike for most of his time. He moved on to basically have this huge jump up to World SBK. But he's the reference point for Moto America to World SBK at the moment. And Jake hasn't been able to get the results that 
I think he would have wanted or that Honda would have expected. But it's probably been about in line with what a guy with his experience should be getting. But until we get Cameron Bobier to make the move across, for most of the Europeans in the paddock, they'll look at Jake Gagne's results as being a reference point for the Moto America Championship. Yeah, no. Uh, we actually got a chance to talk to, to Jake Gagne at the Laguna Seca paddock. So why don't we play that audio now, Steve, and we'll come back to this. I'll just, I'll just ask it straight away then. How's the season looking so far for you? The big step up for, to World Superbike this year? Yeah, the big step up, definitely. Just that. Um, it's been a good year, man. I've been having fun. I've been uh, learning a lot, that's for sure. I've been making some mistakes, for sure. Um, but, you know, we expected it. We're jumping in the deep end, you know. Uh, these guys are no joke. And I've been learning every step of the way. Like I said, I've been making some mistakes. We've been having good days and bad days. But, uh you know, it was, uh, it's been an interesting year, so I've uh, been having fun, and you know, it's, we knew there'd be a lot of new tracks and things like that, and these guys come out of the gate so fast in first practice on Friday that we're always playing catch-up, you know, and it takes us a couple of sessions, and then by Sunday morning or Sunday of the race, we finally have a setup we're happy with, I finally got my head around the track a little bit, and then it's like, we just want to start the weekend over at that point, you know, but we can't, we knew that's how it would be. And we knew we'd be kind of be behind the eight ball a little bit on this, all this stuff, but, um, it's all starting to kind of come together. You know, I think I got a lot of my stupid mistakes out of the way. Um, some big crashes for sure. Uh, so I'm just trying to be smart be smooth. And these guys, I got a great, great team. And so they're keeping me, keeping me cool, keeping me calm. Um, they're always behind me or I'm always learning from them. So, um, it's just been a big learning year, honestly, you know, What's been the biggest challenge in terms of learning the tracks, learning the new superbike spec, learning the new tires? I mean, everything's new for you. Which which one's been the biggest hurdle? Uh, you know, there's a lot, man. Um, the new tracks, you know, the tracks aren't... I feel like I've always kind of picked up on tracks pretty well, but then, um, you know, you can get your head wrapped, you can wrap your head around it, find the lines and everything like that, but uh, getting a good bike set up um, has kind of been the biggest thing, and a lot of it is me and my feedback and my figuring out what my priorities are with the motorcycle and even my riding style has even changed quite a bit compared to last year for sure um, figuring out how to ride these Pirellis a little better figuring out how to ride a super bike a little more efficiently um, and trying not to throw myself on the ground too much in the process you know so I've lately it's kind of been the story of making sure the guys keep me calm and keep me thinking on what I'm supposed to do and the story with this bike seems to be like this you know smooth as fast um, and you know, I'm out there riding at hundred percent all the time and I'm learning slowly that I got to back it down to 90, 95% and, and it seems easier, but the lap time comes and we're being easier on the, on the, on the tires and everything like that. So, um, I'm starting to put it all together and learn it along the way. So how big of a challenge is it, Jake, then when you look at a track like here at Laguna, you've got a lot of information here from the past. You came in FP1 immediately quick. FP2, FP3, you start to ride a bit more aggressively. Like, how difficult is it to try and rein that in? That is tough, you know. Like you said, I mean, yeah, free practice one. I came in after that first stint, and we were, like, inside the top ten. I think I seventh or eighth. And then, so, here's me getting all excited. Like, shit, we're, we're ready to go. We're ready. We got some speed. And then, uh, the you know, the less, the rest of that session and even the rest of the day, we had some, some issues. I was definitely overriding the bike. There's no doubt about that. Um getting myself into some sticky situations and um, then we kind of chase some bike setup stuff because I'm overriding the bike and if I could just and those guys are doing their best to try to keep me calm uh, and just keep me focusing on my riding focusing on trying to be a little bit easier on the side of the tire and 
working on the drives and working on using the where this Honda is strong, you know. And there's definitely there's definitely parts where this Honda is strong. So, um, yeah, like you said, it's been a progress all weekend. We had a really we had a bad qualifying session. We were changing some tires around, but we kind of came back to what like yesterday we started off. The bike was good, and then. Um, I was overriding the bike, like I said, and then so we're switching stuff up on the bike, trying to this and that, and then uh, at the end of, at the end of yesterday, we just go back to exactly what we started on, and then so it's kind of we chase our tail and go around the block and then come back to the same spot. So um, just learning a lot, man. And we made some progress this morning. Made another good step in the race with how the bike is riding and how I'm feeling on it, and uh, unfortunately qualifying wasn't good and. I think I kind of got one. Of, I got my best lap canceled anyway for running off the track a little bit, and then uh, we had a couple little issues in the race, but still managed our best our best result of the year. So um, that's cool in front of the hometown fans. I got a lot of friends and family here, so we're definitely pushing to make uh, another step forward tomorrow. Can you describe for me like the racer's perspective on jumping off of a Dunlop onto a Pirelli in terms of what that means in terms of riding style, bike setup, or just approach for the weekend? Yeah, I. Um, you know the Dunlops and the Pirellis are quite a, you know they're round and rubber but they're quite a bit different you know what I mean and uh, I know at least at first jumping on the thing last year when I was going back to back you know the the Pirelli front has always been really strong these guys are really late on the brakes um, they're using the center of the tire really well and even the edge of the tire um, and the rear has been really strong too they're always pretty they do a really good job at most tracks of holding up for the whole race long we've seen some really fast laps at the end of the race um, as far as setup goes, it's you know our our Honda here in the states that I was riding last year is a whole different animal compared to this thing. There's so many different parts and so many different things going on that it's hard to even compare the setup. You know what I mean? But um, definitely using taking advantage of the Pirelli front tire, which is really good, and the the rear tire is really good too. Making sure I get off the edge of the tire and use the fat part of the tire more has been priority for us. And uh, you know, I even I know the Dunlop guys have made some I, from the Moto America side of things. I know they've made some good progress. We see they're going fast this weekend too. So um, we're always we're always trying to learn. And uh, it's funny because this weekend I guess we've got our first our first taste of some some data last year. And so it's kind of cool to see the bike I rode last year and and where we've progressed this year. You know, and last year we didn't make a whole lot of changes anyway. I was mostly just doing laps. And then this year it was good to see. Uh, where we are with the bike, you know, we got the front end quite a bit higher and the whole bike a little bit higher, got some more weight on the rear and have a little bit more room to push into the front and not be so so, lo- so loaded on the front end. Um, so yeah, it's been an interesting, interesting time. Looking at the rest of the season, wrapping up your, your rookie season World Superbike, what, what kind of goals are you looking to hit? What are your benchmarks to, to weigh this, you know, year as a success for you? Yeah, um, just keep making progress. These last couple weekends, we finally been gathering some steam and not doing anything too crazy. We had a rough couple weekends. I had a really rough weekend in Thailand, rough weekend in Assen. Um, but it's I feel like we're all kind of starting to come together and knowing with my riding, like I said, staying calm and being smooth on this thing. And uh, But we definitely want to be, I think our next goal is to be in the top 10 more consistently, especially in qualifying. You know, like I said, we're usually a little bit behind on those some of these newer tracks and um, I just really need to get myself into Super Bowl two and see what one of those cues feels like, um, because we've been back there on the grid and those starts, the starts have been okay and the first couple laps have been okay, but there's been, and there's been quite a bit of races where um, being that far back on the grid and it's like I, you know, I can make some passes, but we just lose so much time in those first couple laps and then I'm seeing 
the middle of the race, end of the race, the pace is kind of the same as the guys I want to be with, but we, we just got to get up there on the grid first. And uh, so that's obviously another little priority. And um, we were hoping for a good one this this, uh, this weekend, but that's how it goes. And uh, we'll keep, keep pushing and keep trying to be smart about it. Well, thanks, Shane. Good luck with the season. Thank you, guys. Steve, so interesting to hear Jake's perspective. And... Uh, he, you know, he's such a, a great guy to talk to. So I think there's a little bit of the shame in the sense that I don't think we're going to see him in the World Superbike Paddock next year. Yeah, I, I have to say, I really like Jake. I think he's a super talented rider as well. There's not too many riders that can go out in an AMA 450 motocross race and qualify for a final and be able to compete in that and then move on to race on a superbike the next week. And that's what Gagne can do. He's got all that natural ability. But unfortunately for Jake, you'd look at him and you'd probably think he should have chosen one or the other earlier in his career, but he didn't have the circumstances that allowed him to do that. So he sort of had to keep racing in in uh, on the dirt and also in uh, short circuit racing because he wasn't getting good offers in the Moto America paddock for a long time. He, he was on the Honda last year and luckily for, for him, he's been able to make the transition to World SBK. But he's faced such an uphill task trying to learn everything about that bike, whether it was electronics, new engines, new tires, working with a new team, living in a new country. All those things just cause such a such a a huge amount of difficulty for any rider to deal with one or two of those things. Jake's had to deal with five or six of the biggest challenges that any rider can deal with. He's had to deal with them all on the same year that he makes the move to race in the World Championship. And that's a big that's a big task for any rider. And unfortunately for Jake, as you said, it looks unlikely that he'll be able to hold on to his Red Bull Honda seat for next year. But hopefully for him, he's able to use it to transition into a competitive bike, whether it's in Moto America or just to be able to stay on the World SBK grid. Yeah, it's interesting listening to him describe kind of the... Uh... The process of always playing catch up, as you said it, you know, having to come learn these new tracks, having to to find a setup for them, and 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 the challenge of having the Moto America Honda being so different from the World Superbike Honda, and really having to learn, you know, a whole new bike. Um, you know, just because he was a Honda rider before, doesn't really translate per se over to being a Honda rider in the Red Bull Honda team. Um, I think that is a great cautionary tale for anyone that's going to make that jump. And maybe that's why we're not seeing some of these top level guys make the move from Moto America to World Superbike because the risk is so high, because the differences are so high. You really are rolling the dice. And why would you roll the guy, the dice and take a gamble on an unknown when you've got a good thing already? Yeah, like if you're Cameron Bobia and you're earning, I don't know, quarter of a million, 300,000. Is there any real advantage to going over to racing in World SBK where you're probably going to have to take a pay cut to go there? It's going to cost you an awful lot more in terms of are you going to fly from the US for every round? Are you going to live in Europe? Are you going to have a house in both countries? Are you going to do you know, a load of different things compared to how you would traditionally set up your season? And are you actually going to win races? You're probably not going to win races if you're coming from Moto America to race in uh, world sbk because you have so much to learn i think uh, you know jake talked about the tires there for jensen for one thing the pirelli works so differently to a dunlop tire that everything changes how you set the bike up the electronics that you have to use in the bike and just how you use that tire changes so dramatically that a rider has to relearn everything from the ground up that for even if you're cameron bobier coming in 
and you've got a winter to try and get yourself ready, there's still a really steep learning curve for an experienced superbike rider. Gagne wasn't an experienced superbike rider when he came across. He's a talent, but talent only gets you so far. You need to have that experience as well. And as you said, he could well be the cautionary tale for a Moto America rider, unfortunately. Yeah, one one last thing I just want to say about Jake that, that I think is interesting. When I look back to Josh Heron making the jump from Moto America to Moto2, it was that same feeling at the time of fantastic rider, a top talent, but not the best foot forward for American racing. Um, Josh was obviously a Moto America Superbike Championship uh, winner, but you, I think you could put a couple, I'm not going to say an asterisk next to that championship. He definitely earned it, but that championship came to him in part because of the failures that Josh Hayes had that season. That wasn't Josh Heron going out and dominating the Moto America championship with his talent. It was him being an extremely good rider and also getting some lucky breaks from his teammate. And it's the same thing with, with Jake Gagne, a fantastic rider, but he's not the the best that we have. I think Cameron Bobier really is the best rider in America right now. And for him to make that jump, that would be, I think, a true apples-to-apples apples comparison. Okay, this is what the American Superbike program can develop, and this is what that talent looks like on the world stage i just don't know if we're going to get a chance to see that yeah i think uh, josh heron's a good example as you said because when you talk to people within the moto america paddock after heron made the move the one thing that you heard constantly was he's not the person that we want to use as the example for moto america maybe now he is because he's been able to get the moto 2 experience he's gone back to america and he's clearly a much better rider now and a much more rounded person now than he was when he made the move to moto 2 but when he went to europe he wasn't ready for that you know someone like bobier they would be ready for it because he's that little bit older he's got that maturity he's got that experience but will he make the move probably you know it's un- it's unlikely that he'll make that move so that then means that we're looking at the likes of Garrett Gerloff came over to a couple of Moto, MotoGP races last year just to get his face out there. He's a smart rider. He's an intelligent guy. He understands how he needs to play the game to be able to get an opportunity in Europe. But he's had a bad year in Moto America, so he's put to the back of the list for that. You know, the likes of J.D. Beach, how many guys are all-rounders like J.D. Beach that can go out on you know, an AFT Twins race put it on the podium and then come back the next week, race the 600 and uh, win a race in, in the Moto America series. There's not too many guys like JD Beach, but he's also not getting that opportunity to move up onto a superbike. Would someone like Beach move to Yosh Suzuki? He's always been very loyal to Yamaha in the past, so he's in all likelihood waiting for an opening at Graves Yamaha to be able to move up to their superbike. So for the likes of Beach, for the likes of all those riders that could move up, whether it's Heron now again, all those riders that could make the next step in Moto America, they're all being held back by the fact that Bobby is sitting there on that Graves Yamaha. And until he moves, that's a seat that's just always going to be taken because Bobby is a guaranteed race winner, guaranteed title contender in Moto America. There's no need for Yamaha US to ever move away from him if he's happy to be in that paddock. Yeah. Just just one thing to to talk about Josh Heron because it just kind of occurred to me and then we'll move on. He really is going to be a world-class rider. I'm just worried that it's going to be a little too late for him to to move out of um the American racing landscape and go back into the international landscape. I think maybe he had that chance already. Yeah, well, I'm unfortunately for Josh, he's 27, 28 years of age. So 
it probably is too late for him unless he can make that transition pretty quick. Now, he did come to race at Laguna Seca. He put up a really good performance. He showed well for what he can do because he did double duty racing in Moto America the same weekend as Worlds. He was on different tyres for each championship and did a really good job to be able to show that he could transition from one to the other. But did he do a good enough job to actually get a ride for you know next season or the year after? That's what the big question is going to be. Now, there is another American on the grid in the form of PJ Jacobson that has all that experience in Europe. The World SBK Paddock knows that PJ's got plenty of talent. He's been a World Supersport race winner, title contender going up against Keenan Safoglu. And he made the move to race in the World Championship this year on, on a superbike. And uh, he's probably, you'd imagine, the most likely American in the next couple of years to get a decent shot in World SBK. But... You know, PJ's struggled at times this year on the Triple M Honda. It's not an easy bike to learn that Honda, with uh, Leon Camier having been injured as well so much through the season. The Honda hasn't developed. So for the likes of Gagne and Jacobson, they've both probably been held back a little bit by circumstances outside of their control this year to an extent as well. So, you know, there is talent in America. It's just whether or not it's going to get the chance to shine at the right time. No, you're right in bringing up P.J. Jacobson. I think he's the unsung hero of, of American superbiking dreams. And I think it's because he's quietly just doing the work. You know, he's putting in the time at Triple M Honda. He was uh, instrumental in getting the Magneti Morelli electronics up to spec for the factory boys. You know, he's he's been the workhorse. He filled in for uh, Leon Camier at the uh, Suzuka 8 Hours. Um, you know, and there's never really been like a breakout uh, result for PJ, but he's always been there doing the time, doing the work and, and making more out of than what he's been given. And I think that's a hard thing to, to shine through sometimes because you don't, you know, it's not as flashy as, as taking a podium victory or taking a race win, but he's punching, he's punching above his weight class. And I think it's just a matter of getting the right team and the right opportunity to have a package around him where he can make that next step. I don't know if that's on a Honda though, Steve. Yeah, unfortunately for PJ, it's it's tough to see where he goes to make the next step forward. Now, I think he'll stay on the Honda for next year because going to Suzuka, putting that bike on the podium in difficult circumstances, he didn't make a mistake, showed that he has, you know, a level of maturity that's needed. He's His performances at Suzuka probably surprised some people, not so much in the race, but in the tests where he was really quick. With the Bridgestone tires, he was able to ride that a lot more comfortably. Maybe he now can take those lessons and try and put them onto a Pirelli Shod Honda as well over the course of the next couple of months. But I think PJ is a talented rider, deserves a spot on the Superbike grid. He showed himself in Supersport that he's a good learner. If you think back to whenever he was racing in the British Championship as well, he was a podium man in BSB as a, as a very young rider as well. So PJ's got a lot of talent. It's just whether or not he's going to get the opportunities. But I think... It would be a big surprise if he wasn't on the Superbike grid next year, which is good for America because we do need to have American riders on that grid. Yeah, no, I'd be very surprised if he wasn't on that grid next year. Uh, there's a lot of talk that Honda will have another updated version of the CBR1000 for the 2019 model year. Uh, that should debut in a couple months' time. Uh, I don't have a lot of faith that it's going to be a big step forward for them, but maybe that will help the superbike effort in having a, a homologation that is a little bit more uh, friendly for where they need to make their development gains. So, you know, maybe maybe there is some value in staying on the Honda that does look like that as a platform that is that is moving forward. I don't know. Time will tell on that one. 
Yeah, well, the one thing that we've seen time and again is that changing the homologation can make a big difference. If you look at the last probably five, six years, what was one of the best bikes in World SBK? It was the Aprilia RSV4. But whenever they had to set uh, the homologation for the current model, it changed where the engine was placed. It changed the weight distribution quite a lot. And it's taken Aprilia a long time to be able to figure out a solution for that. And uh, you'd, you'd look at... You know, Eugene Laverty's been back on that bike for two years now. It took him pretty much all of last season to learn how to get the most from that package. And that really was one of the key things where you're able to see, you know what, just having the baseline bike isn't enough any longer. You need to make sure that everything's actually homologated correctly so that you're able to be quick in the World SBK Championship as well. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right to bring up Aprilia in that example. And that's actually kind of where I wanted to go next because I ha- had an opportunity to sit down with uh, Eugene Laverty at Laguna and kind of talk about these rule changes and how they've affected the uh, Aprilia platform. Um, one of the things I didn't talk to Eugene about, and I kind of want to have a discussion with you really quickly before we dive into the audio, is the the move, or let's say it this way, the departure of Gigi uh, Dalinga versus Romano Blessiano coming in to the team. Do you think that might be responsible in a way for Aprilia's fate? Because I look at what Aprilia was under Gigi and look at what Aprilia is under Romano and I see one team that was very high level high functioning world championship winning and the other that has kind of become an also ran and we've also seen Aprilia struggling with its MotoGP program and I can't help but feel that maybe all those things kind of come back to one person is that fair yeah Romano ain't no Gigi but um, you'd also have your situation where a lot's changed for Aprilia because suddenly World SBK wasn't the most important thing. You had World SBK and MotoGP. GG only ever had World SBK. So the resources within the factory changed quite a lot. But uh, yeah, I definitely would think that the difference between GG and Romano is enormous in terms of how they organize things. And just from the outside looking in, their ability to manage people and their ability to just be engineers. Like I know from my own experience working as an engineer, there's two different types of engineers. There's the kind that get the job done and there's the kind that really understand things and can drive things forward. I was definitely a can get the job done kind of engineer, but I'd work on projects with guys that just were at a level above me and they understood things an awful lot better and they were able to really drive the direction of a project. Gigi's the latter, and I'd say Romano is more of the former, where he can get the job done, but he needs a lot of things going his way right now, and he's getting he's getting no luck in either paddock, really, to be able to, to drive uh, his teams forward. And I think if you were to look at Aprilia as a whole, there's been a lot of disgruntled riders, a lot of disgruntled engineers, and a lot of bad results over the course of the last few years. The blame for that ultimately always goes to the head man. Romano's the head man, and Aprilia haven't gotten the job done in either championship over the last few years. Gigi moved to Ducati. The Panigale is a race winner, a title contender. The uh, the GP bike is a consistent race winner and title contender now over the last couple of years with Davizioso last year, this year with Lorenzo winning races as well. Gigi mightn't be to everyone's liking, and you can see you can see that particularly in the World SBK paddock because we don't have Ernie Marinelli leading the Ducati project anymore because him and Gigi, they, it was always going to end in the two of them butting heads because they went against each other for so long that uh, 
ultimately Ernie left that left his role with uh, the World SBK team. But Gigi's been able to take on a World SBK program with Ducati, make it into a title contender, and he's been able to do the same in the MotoGP paddock. And Romano, unfortunately for Aprilia, hasn't been able to do that with either project. Yeah. No, I think it's very fair to to frame that inside of uh, kind of looking at what Aprilia's goals are and their emphases and understanding that the World Superbike program of the past was such a higher priority than it is now. And that's actually one of the things I talked to Eugene Laverty a little bit about. So why don't we dive into that audio and and hear that and we'll come back to it, Steve. So Eugene, we're here in Laguna Seca. Had a good result here in race one, but how's the season been overall for you so far this year? Uh, started off really well. Uh, testing was good and we started off the first few rounds really strong. Then the injury was uh, the big problem because I lost a few rounds and then when you come back from a big injury like that, it takes time to get back into the swing of things. But yeah, every race I think we've been getting better and better. We were somewhere right in 10th position in Imola, it was really lowly, and then Donington was sort of 6th, Bruno 4th, again here 4th, so trying to step it up again tomorrow. It really seems to be a little mercurial sometimes, like you have good weekends and you have bad weekends. What's What do you need to make that step to have more consistency and be right there at the front every time? I honestly believe we made it yesterday in free practice today. Um, it, this bike revolves around rear grip. If you've got rear grip, the the bike stops, it turns and it exits. And we, we've been chasing it the last few rounds. We've been making gradual progress, but finally we made the the right step uh, yesterday afternoon in free practice three. And didn't matter old tire, new tire, or cold conditions or hot conditions, we've got rear grip. And uh, the solution was something very simple. It often is. <laughs> you know, you don't never. Um, need a new part for something like that is just um, getting the, the balance right and we finally clicked with the, the rear set and we understand what it needs now to get rear grip so I think we're going to be there from now on. Has there been a lot of issues switching from the big tire to the small tire or is it not an issue with the Aprilia? It, it was a big issue for me it wasn't for the Aprilia but it was, it was more smaller riders struggle with it. the bigger riders like uh, the Renzo Top rack, uh, Razgatlioglu, also Vandermark. You know, you saw those guys at Donington; they were flying. They got on the big tire and they loved it right away. Whereas the smaller guys weren't able to, to push the rear tire um, as much as them. So we had to change the bike around in order to get the rear grip. So I struggled with it initially, but we persevered and finally we've got it hooking up. Looking ahead to the coming races and the rest of the season, you know, what, what are what are your goals? What what tracks do you think you can make progress at? And uh, I like it here. I like uh, Porto Mayo, you know, the, the rider's tracks. Um, we know the level of the Aprilia. It's not a race winning bike. So uh, we'll have to use the, the tracks where the rider can make a difference. Any track that's undulating, the rider can really wrestle the bike, climb over it. And if you see a track going up and down, then you know that I'm going to be not far away. Um, there's some tracks where, you know, if your bike ain't working, there ain't a damn thing you can do about it. But um, the undulating ones, uh, I look forward to them. Can you talk to me about how the rules affect you with the gear ratios, with the power performance balancing? Uh, it seems like that's been an, a bit of a blow to, to you and the, the Aprilia team. I think it's been a, a setback for everybody. Um, I don't think it hurt us any more than the others, to be honest. I don't think it was a real pain in the ass. It just makes things more difficult that we have more gear shifts. Uh, that's the main thing. Uh, the thing that did hurt us was this, I think they've changed it every three rounds, so after round three, after round six, they um, 
uh, each manufacturer depending on results to increase or decrease revs or whatever and I think some of the the manufacturers that haven't been as strong they gained some RPM but we were just on the cusp and we missed out so that probably cost us more than anything I think in the winter time it was pretty even how everybody got set back but yeah we, we missed out on that uh, little rev bonus that would have helped us can you explain to me how this bike differs from the, the let's say the first time around you were on it you know um, we were last in world superbike it's, it's changed a lot in that in that time frame hasn't it it has because of the rules mainly um big thing is that with the rules being more standard the biggest problem that i've struggled is that the bike doesn't stop anymore it was always a bit of a problem back in the day as we say five years ago the bike didn't stop uh, like a rival kawasaki and uh, with these rules with uh, the generator and the engine generally being quite heavy internal parts uh, you hit the brakes and it's it's like you're driving a truck against cars um, that's a problem we saw it in that race as well I got stuck behind Tom Sykes for um, maybe half a dozen laps even though it was half a second faster because we can't overtake it's too dangerous to overtake in this bike so that's the one thing that's hurt us is just uh, the inertia of the engine the bike doesn't want to stop and when you've got a bike that doesn't want to stop it also doesn't want to go and that makes it tricky so um, we got to deal with with it that's how it is what are your goals in terms of Qatar finishes? You look back on the season, where do you want to be? What do you want to have achieved? Uh, I need to be getting those podiums. Uh, we've been on the cusp recently, a couple of fourth places in a row, so I want to get podiums. It's it's going to be tough to, to beat you know, Johnny and the Kawasaki. That package is working so well. But we saw today we weren't uh, far away from the Yamahas. Um, I want to be getting a few podiums, and oh, if we can wing it and get a win, that would be fantastic. I know tomorrow you're going to start from the front row because of the way the uh, new grid positions are slotted. But how do you like that role? Do you think that's been good for Superbike? It's obviously favored you a few times. Yeah, it's been good for me because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I haven't been on the podium. So it always seems to work well for me. It means I start from first or second row in the second race. So it's all good. Um, it hurts the, the guys that have been on the podium in race one, sure. But uh, so far, it hasn't, <laughs> hasn't been an issue for me. So. Well, hopefully we'll see you on the top step soon. Thanks for talking to us. It'll be nice. Thank you. Steve, talking to Eugene, and you know, it was it was funny for me because I kind of actually remember back a, a few years ago when we were doing some some fantasy racing. Eugene and that Aprilia were my boy. I made a, I made a killing on that combination because I think it was extremely undervalued by a lot of people in the paddock. But him on that Aprilia back in the day was a strong combination. It was a race winning combination. It was a championship contending combination. And that really hasn't been the case. I was actually really surprised to see um, the lack of result of the of the Milwaukee Aprilia team with Eugene on board. Uh, I, I was expecting more. What, you know, did it meet your expectations, or, or how did you see it? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, definitely last year in particular, it didn't meet expectations at all. I think everyone expected that Laverty was gonna. I know that I have I had written in my preseason previews last year that Laverty was gonna be a title contender. Laverty was gonna win races. Laverty and Aprilia were gonna be right back where they left off a few years previously, and instead it was probably the biggest disappointment that you could have seen in World SBK last season. It took until halfway through this season for Laverty to get back on the podium, but this season. And last winter, we did see an awful lot of progress for the Milwaukee Aprilia team. They understood what the bike needed to do. And in fairness, the regulation changes helped uh, to probably bring that Aprilia back to where it needed to be. Not because it gained any advantage from the regulations, but it actually lost some power 
and it uh, started to smooth out that power delivery, gave Laverty a much more friendly bike for him to be able to ride and that's why we turned up at the first round of the year he was leading in race two before he crashed out and unfortunately for Laverty we went to the second round of the year where again he was pretty competitive in Thailand but then had a crash got run over had a pretty bad injury he had internal injuries a lot of internal bleeding and he missed two rounds came back at at Imola probably the most physical round of the year and it took another couple of rounds for him to really get himself back up to speed but two podiums in a row at Laguna Seca and Mizano showed the progress that he's made. You'd imagine in the second half of the season that Laverty will be able to fight at the front again. And it wouldn't be a surprise now if he adds to his to his race wins tally and more or less BK. Yeah, it's interesting to, men- to hear you mention uh, Imola because Imola was the round that Pirelli brought in the new, what they're, what they're calling the big, the big rear tire. It's a 200 slash 65 uh, tire, which is basically a taller tire than what Superbike has been using. And, and Laverty in the audio, you hear him talk a little bit about the change that this has brought about for the riders and how the smaller riders are seeming are, are struggling a little bit, whereas the bigger riders are, are really coming to grips with this tire more quickly, no, no pun intended, um, and, and finding some results out of it. Have you had a chance to talk to a lot of the World Superbike riders to see their thoughts on this tire or, or or is it mostly them being Pirelli sponsored riders uh, in front of a microphone? Well, in front of a microphone, they're all Pirelli riders. But uh, the one thing about it is the big tire is the reference tire now. It's made a huge step forward and every single rider on the grid knows that it's the tire you have to use. If you look at uh, when you did that interview, Jensen, that would have been at Laguna. I think it was on Friday you talked to Eugene. So it was before uh... race one. I think it was before race two, after race one. Okay, well, what would have happened was the riders would have used, or at least Melandri and Michael Vandermark used the big tyre at Imola. And then at Donington Park, Vandermark picked up both race victories using the big tyre, which meant we went to Bruno and every rider on the grid knew they needed to use the big tyre. But it meant that they only had the Bruno weekend to really understand how to make that tyre work. So by the time we got to Laguna and then at Mizano, all that extra experience gave the teams a lot more of an understanding of what they needed to change with that bike to be able to get more and more out of that tyre. For Mizano and for Laguna, a lot of riders made a big step forward with that tyre and now they all understand that for the last four rounds of the year, pretty much every other tyre in the bag is irrelevant. You're going to use that big tyre at every round. Now they understand, particularly after using... In uh, Mizano, we had a qualifying tyre that was also the big tyre in qualifying. So they were all able to get even more of an understanding of the big tyre from that. So now in these final four rounds of the year, I think that any talk about you know one about the tyre maybe helping a bigger rider than a smaller rider, I definitely don't think we'll see too much about that in the coming rounds. Yeah, and that's something we're seeing too on the production side where... Um... 200 slash 60 tires are now kind of the the hot new thing. Pirelli just came out with um, the Super Corsa SPV3, which is fitted on the Panigale V4. Um, and I just was looking the other day. Uh, you know, Dunlop has kind of followed suit with its racing slicks for for Moto America. They're running a 20, um, a 200, sorry, a 200 slash 60 as well. Looking for that taller profile, which is going to give a lot more of a contact patch on the. Uh, on the tire when it's leaned over and i was just in 
Milan not too long ago talking to uh, some some Pirelli people that probably should be unnamed. But it looks like that's going to happen with the front tire as well. I think we're going to start seeing uh, Pirelli play around with a a 120/75 moving into a taller profile from the 120/70. This just this this just seems to be the progression of the sport and and the progression of the tire technology and if you're not on board with it you're going to be left behind and i think we saw that in the world superbike paddock where yeah absolutely this this taller tire is the sc0 it is the reference tire for the for the paddock now moving from the tire steve looking at the rest of the regulation changes that we've seen this year for the world superbike paddock it looks like it's had quite an effect on on a number of teams and Aprilia seems to have been affected quite a bit by these rule changes, which which kind of surprised me because a lot of the the changes were supposed to be for uh, kind of performance balancing, and it seemed to kind of affect one of the less performing teams um, more than 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 say Kawasaki or, or Ducati, or maybe that's just a resource issue. Um, how do you see the the rule changes and the performance ba- balancing formula working this year? And do you think we'll see any changes for it next year? I think it's something that we're going to see kept a pretty close eye on over the course of the next couple of years. But I think for me, one of the biggest rule changes that they made wasn't so much performance balancing. It was the fact that you had price capping came into effect in a lot of parts that you were able to buy. Now, Eugene Laverty would have talked about how for Aprilia, suddenly you needed to make a lot more gear shifts through through each circuit. You change your shift pattern. Each track suddenly made, uh, you know, one year to the next was very different. But one of the changes that we've seen from the regulations for this year is that the midfield has closed up to the front quite a lot. That's why Pachetti was able to get a podium with Top Rack Razgetti Oglu. That's why we've had, you know, a lot of other bikes able to make a step forward this season. I think that if you were to look at the regulation changes, one of the most significant changes they made was that uh, for this season all of the teams were able to basically buy the exact same spec as bike as the the reference bike. So if you were on a Pichetti Kawasaki or an Aralak Kawasaki, you could have the exact same spec of bike as what Ray and Sykes are running. That made the midfield a lot more competitive. Aprilia, for Eugene Laverty, may not have been able to make that big step forward because of an advantage like that. But as I said at the start of when we talked about Eugene, just being able to have an engine that the power curve changed a lot seemed to help him a lot just to have that little bit more stability and that little bit more confidence in the bike. And that's where he made his step forward. For some bikes, for some teams, they made a bigger step forward than others. And I know, Jensen, when you talk to Jonathan Ray, he talked a little bit about the regulation changes and the effect that they've had on his bike with Kawasaki. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that quite a bit. So why don't we jump into that audio? It's a bit long, but I think there's some really interesting things to take away from it, Steve, and we'll, we'll come back to it. So, Johnny, I've been going around asking all the riders how they can beat you. What's it like being the guy with the target behind his back? Honestly, I don't feel like there's a target there. Um, and not kind of worrying about what's happening right now. I'm just really enjoying the moment. And um, it's really difficult to explain because... All the in the past, all the the results have just been coming and coming and coming, and it doesn't feel like we're. Of course, I'm working my ass off, and the team are working really hard, but it's happening naturally. And um, when that's happening, we can just really enjoy the moment. And and I think the biggest fear is not having that enjoyment and not having that uh, you know drive to keep coming to the track and and it being normal to keep winning. So. Um, 
yes, yeah, strange, but um, you know, I'm I'm loving it. What do you think has been the biggest factor in, in the success you've been having these past seasons? Having an amazing team around me and uh, enjoying it. I mean, and you have to have fun. Um, the team have given me everything I need to ride really, really fast from a technical point of view. This year, we feel like we're fighting with our hands tied behind our back a little bit with our bike, but still we're making the most of the chassis and week to week changing the balance of things to make it um, at least competitive enough to fight for race wins. And um, I mean, that's the difference. I mean, my my crew, we all pulled together and... Um, the feedback to Japan in the last years has been going in a good direction where I feel really good and I think um, yeah long may that continue really when you say if your hands tied behind your back I assume you mean the technical reg- regulations that have been changing yeah sure I mean we have we with RPMs um, which makes a lot more power and much easier in the lap with less shifting uh, we would rev much higher than you know 15,000 RPM last year this year we have 14.1 set in the regulation so it's from Kawasaki point of view it's uh, tough because we have a bike that's much more capable than what we have but we can't really utilize it um, so but I mean things are going good results wise for us this year but it just feels like um, we have to maximize everything with electronics chassis and um, I mean we have had no development parts from the engine side now for since the technical regs came because we I mean we can't do much I mean we're, we're kind of uh, we are where we are but uh, that's enough to win and I mean uh, there's been six different race winners this year which is kind of uh, unheard of in Superbike for the last sort of four or five years so that's a that's a huge plus and um, I mean people seem to be enjoying the races a little bit better and uh, I just feel like with the technical regs doesn't we don't need to reverse the grid for race two sometimes with with that it actually prevents a race because one guy gets through or one guy doesn't get through the traffic and but uh, I think the balance right now is quite good I mean aside from so far today at the season we've been more consistent than the rest how much of an impact has the gearbox ratio freeze and the sim- cylinder disablement been in terms of having to find solutions and workarounds for those those hurdles? Um, yeah, like you said, the other big uh, factor is the fixed gearbox for the season. So now we have a, a fixed RPM. Um, it means gearing choice is absolutely critical, and uh, with that, with that in mind, we can't change things much track to track for for corners and uh, the the biggest thing we can do is change the final ratio like the sprockets if you like and that's um, I mean that's quite a you're never going to get it right for example just doing that so it's a huge compromise track to track I think that's why you see some wild cards coming up during the weekends because you know, some weekends where you go to you feel like you're going to be strong and you're not and it's vice versa some weekends you think you're not going to be so strong and you are like this year Aragon I was much stronger than the past Imola as well but just so seemed that our bike wasn't so bad and maybe the others were a bit more disadvantaged looking at the end of the season is it too early to start penciling your name in is that something that even occurs to you or you just take it race by race yeah it's always race by race for me even in the past with um, you know even bigger championship lead but of course everything's going to plan and the the target's always to win at the end of the season so um, just step by step it's important to get through Mizano and go in the summer break with um, 
hopefully the same or increased margin and then last four rounds of the season just then we can start to really think about it but really important to get through Mizano before I start to feel, think about the championship sometimes it's hard to get excited with World Super Rugby because you keep winning and you keep pulling out the competition but how do you see you can improve the, the show that goes on here um, a difficult question I think the championship's in good hands with Dorna I mean they are doing things a lot different to what's been going on in the past uh, especially now with the you know the pre-event show going around local towns bringing people to the race but it just seems like uh, domestic series now in the world are there's no kind of route to the world championship to get a huge mix of nationalities um, right now world sort of bikes full of the BSB class from 2007 where I raced and uh, I mean that's that's cool and all and shows how strong that championship was but I, I feel like there needs to be a bigger mix of nationalities um, and it's really it seems really obvious and it, it's never going to happen but the factories that build manufacturers that make these bikes they they should take the series as serious as Kawasaki take it you know and turn up with you know I've no doubt in my brain that um, you know if if Honda weren't just playing with the championship they could come here with a competitive bike um, the same with uh, Aprilia are you know not as involved as they were BMW I mean if all these factories were throwing their support at uh, Superbike it would be much more competitive from each and every manufacturer and I guess that will improve the show but um it's hard to know. I mean, I come from a motocross background, and I think it's more important what goes on at the circuit away from just the racing. You know, there needs to be more of a, a festival feeling to it. You know, I just come back from Isle of Man TT, and it's a festival. You know, you can take your wife and kids there and not see a bike and still have a great weekend. So whether that's, you know, bringing music acts to the, to the event or, you know, artisan local food produce and kind of make it kind of a, a cool festival feel that the locals get involved in as opposed to, you know, your stereotypical motorcycle fan just coming out on his, on his bike to watch a, a race with, you know, his two mates, you know, make it more family orientated and, and sell the idea again to kids because the, you know, the demographic now a superbike fan is, you know, quite old, you know, and male dominated. And uh, yeah, try and I don't know. It's uh, it's sad, but it's especially when we come here to the U.S., where superbikes been so big in the past. This seems like kids here like they don't grow up and long for a scooter to ride to school or work or whatever. Um, you know, similar in the U.K., but we have you know weather kind of affects that. But you go to Southern Europe, you know, you get to 16. Everyone's riding scooters and you grew up with bikes and a hero like Valentino to look up to. It's kind of, everyone gets into motorbikes from a young age, but um, yeah, a bit of work in that for countries like US and UK for sure. Well, thank you for taking your time to talk to us. Congratulations on your victory today and good luck with the rest of your season. Yeah, thank you. All right, Steve. Yeah, it's interesting to hear Jonathan Ray talk about the change in the RPMs, the change in the gearbox, the disabled uh, cylinders uh, being an issue. Um, there's there's a lot of things that have that have happened in World Superbike that have gone into changing the rules package, and I don't know if we saw that necessarily change the sport at the top of the card, but it seems like that might have had effect in the middle ranks of the series. Yeah, so as I said uh, previously, Jensen, one of the biggest factors is that because those midfield teams are able to 
basically just buy their upgrades and make sure they've got the same spec, you can make a big step forward. I think um, I was talking to some of the people within the sporting side of superbike racing, and they said that one of the biggest key things was that in previous years, if you were a well-funded team, you had to go out and uh, go dyno test an engine and basically blow up two, three, four engines before you understood exactly what you needed to do to upgrade that engine. Suddenly, you can just go to Kawasaki and say, okay, we want the exact same camshafts, we want the same this, that and the other as what KRT are running. And they don't have to take their engines down to a dyno and try and understand what the engine is doing and then try and fix that. We've got better reliability on the grid because all those Kawasaki teams, the Honda teams, the Ducati teams are all able to run the exact same spec. So they've got the same engines, which means their engines are tailored towards the electronics package they have, which means that there's more reliability and more performance. And that's been one of the key changes that we've seen. I know that for Jonathan Ray, he lost pretty much the best part of a thousand revs this season. But for Ray, at least, he's able to find a way to still make that bike work quite well. He understood this time last year that they needed to focus on finding a bike that was better for increasing their corner speed. They used the Portimao test after last year's World SBK round to try and find a solution to be able to just carry more corner speed rather than try and have a bike that was on top end power. So Kawasaki spent the whole winter trying to come up with the best solution for the current regulations, which is what any team should and do um, and do work towards at any given time. They understand that while Kawasaki might have been hamstrung a little bit with the regulation changes, there's plenty of ways to skin a cat. They tried to move away from having you know, the most powerful engine on the grid to suddenly having a chassis that allowed them to carry that speed through the corners. Ray and Pereira focused in on that, whereas maybe on the other side of the pit box with Tom Sykes and Marcel Dwinker, with Tom's riding style, they couldn't look to make the same changes. So for Jonathan Ray, you talked to him about the benefit that happens from having the confidence, Jensen. I think he talked about the flow that he has going into a race weekend. That's what gives him the confidence to be able to win races as opposed to you know, sitting on the best bike on the grid, he understands that the Kawasaki maybe isn't the best bike on the grid, but with him on it, with Pereira setting the bike up, they're able to find the best solution for Ray to be still able to win races. Yeah, I think it's all about the feeling, right? And that's what the the flow is all about. You know, talking as a as a former athlete myself, when you're in that zone, it's it's an incredible feeling because you you just feel the um, the moment right you just you just work in a, in a kind of a state of confidence that if you don't have it's very hard to replicate and that's and that's actually how i see the difference between ray and sykes i see ray in this moment and even even tom said it that this is johnny's time right now you know and he's he's making the best of it and i think it's when you understand that this is your time this is your moment and you don't have to work or maybe not work but fight for that feeling where I, I see Tom having to fight for it. He's trying to fight for the bike to do the things that he wants. He's trying to fight within his team to get the the resources he needs. He's having to fight with Kawasaki for the contracts and for the development that he wants. And that creates a very difficult mental landscape to overcome that uh, I think we're seeing the results on the racetrack. And that's the key thing, Jensen. It's anytime that you're fighting, you're always going to struggle ultimately. It's like anytime I play golf and I play well, haven't actually played 
very well. I've just scored well because it's nice and easy. You're not doing anything special. It's the same as if you look at any game of football, basketball, tennis, anything like that. It's very rare that you see teams just overpower each other. Everything usually just comes a little bit easier for the winners. They've got that little bit of confidence. Jonathan Ray has that confidence. Tom Sykes doesn't have that confidence. He's trying to find that. And anything that he thinks can make a big difference, he's focusing in on. Jonathan Ray, on the other hand, he knows that the big picture is all sorted and that he's able just to consistently work towards just being able to get the most from himself. Yeah. You, when you listen to writers talk about um, when they set like their best laps, uh, either a PR or a record lap, they'll talk sometimes about how it actually felt like a slow lap to them. Um, some of your fastest laps feel like slow laps. And that's it's that same concept because they're not fighting for that that extra tenth at each turn. They're not fighting the bike to make the, the, the apex or to get on the gas and dealing with a head shake down the front straight or whatever it is. It's because everything connects together. All the corners connect together. They flow into each other, to, to use the word again. Um, and it becomes... Um, you're a part of the machine. You're a part of the process, rather than fighting your way through it to try and, and make it up. That's a huge. That's a huge uh, element to, to any sport. Coming back to, to World Superbike, though, and, and and using kind of like a rough metaphor, how do you think Dorna is doing in terms of feeling the flow or fighting the progress? Did, you know, Johnny was talking about how the show is is really strong right now, but that we need more. Um, OEM participation at a higher factory level. We need to have more um, routes from domestic series into World Superbike. Um, right now, you know, he, he made the joke to me that you know this is basically the the British Superbike Series Plus. Um, you know, so how do you see the strategy for Dorna going forward to bring in more nationalities, to get more involvement from OEMs, and to get fans more excited about what's going on track? And does that include popping the tires on Johnny race bikes they're using out there on race day. Well, I'll tell you, the one thing about uh, Jonathan is he understands that, and and we talked to him in Suzuka, uh, Jay, just about one of the key things for him is he understands that there's only so many days where he's going to be the man to beat. Someone's going to come through. There's always going to be a team, a manufacturer that comes through to challenge Kawasaki, a rider that comes through to fight Jonathan Ray. If you were to look at World SBK in general, I think it's actually it's it's in pretty good health. It may not be, you know, the level of popularity it was 15 years ago, but it's actually the racing's quite good. We could do with a few more nationalities on the grid. We need a, a fast Spaniard on the grid. That could be Alvaro Bautista. If he gets onto that Ducati, which looks more and more likely, Suddenly we've got a Spaniard that's able to challenge for race victories. We're, we've got another nationality that's able to fight at the front. Nationalities are key. You know, We need to have another American. We need to have a fast American. We need to have an American that can win races. If that's the case, you've still got Melandri as an Italian on the grid. You've still got your British riders. You need to have that national identity. But if you were to look at the championship as a whole, we've got seven different manufacturers on the grid. We've got some great riders that go to great racetracks it's close to being a like a perfect series it just needs just to make that little step forward the tv coverage is pretty good you know it's not at the same level as what's uh, produced for moto gp but we still get to see great riders on great bikes and great tracks and i think that uh, one of the biggest issues that world sbk has is there is a negativity towards that championship when I sit down to watch the British Superbike Championship, I love BSB, 
But I see Kawasaki's winning that championship as well. I see Leon Haslam leading the way from, you know, Jake Dixon. And this weekend, like, we're recording before Cadwell Park. But you're going to see Danny Buchan out there in a Kawasaki at the front as well. The Kawasaki's the best bike in that championship. But for whatever reason, we hear that BSB is ultra competitive. We hear that it's light years ahead of World SBK. And it's not really an accurate portrayal either. Because when the BSB riders and teams come across to Worlds, they see how difficult it is to win in World Superbikes. And it is difficult. It's a competitive championship. Eugene Laverty, we talked about him for five or ten minutes there. He's a former race winner in the championship. He could easily be a world champion. He's struggling to be able to fight for podiums at times through the course of the last couple of years. Tom Sykes is a world champion. He's won over 30 races in the championship. He struggles to take the fight to Jonathan Ray. You look at Michael Vandermark and Alex, Alex Lowe's. Vandermark's a Supersport World Champion. Lowe's is a BSB Champion. They're both race winners in World Superbikes now. They need to be perfect to beat Jonathan Ray. The biggest problem is arguably just that Ray and Kawasaki have been able to find the solution to be able to keep winning. If we have a, a consistent competitor to take the fight to them, it changes quite a lot. Ducati, we all thought were going to be that challenger. That hasn't materialized over the course of the last few years. Maybe with the new V4, that changes. Maybe with a new BMW, we get another manufacturer that's able to fight for race wins. We probably need to have a Suzuki on the grid, but Suzuki don't seem that uh, pushed on actually putting on a world championship team. They're happy enough with the model that they have with Yosh just producing some parts and being able to sell it to customer teams and BSB. I think some of the negativity, and I, I think I'm a part of this too, when I put my fan hat on, I think I'm tired of seeing a green bike win, no matter who that rider has been. And now it's been Jonathan Ray for the past, you know, three seasons. And um, I'm always looking for like, okay, I want to not have the assumption going in. Okay, who who might beat Jonathan Ray this weekend? That because that I think is the expectation. But by Kawasaki moving its resources out of Moto GP, dumping them into World Superbike, and being such a dominant player for let's let's just say for the better part of the last decade, um, it's created this expectation or maybe this negativity of like, oh well, there goes Kawasaki winning again, whether it's a Tom Sykes or it's a Jonathan Ray uh, at the at the helm of it. Um, and I don't know if that's their fault. And I think I don't. You know, it was interesting talking to Johnny, and I don't think he really says it's 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 their fault. Because at the end of the day, like that's their job. Their job is to go in and to race and to and to be winners. And unfortunately, that hasn't been the job of, say, a Ducati or a Honda or a Yamaha uh, in the past. And they're just now kind of catching up. And you kind of have to do some time and do some work to get to that level that, that Kawasaki's been at for so long and, and honing for so long. So that's tough. I don't know. I don't know how you how you hit the reset button and put everyone at the same peg. Maybe it's these performance balancing rules. Maybe it's um, Superbike needs a, a big rule shakeup, or maybe we just need to let it kind of sit and simmer and let the teams do what they've got to do to 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 fix it. Yeah, I think for me, one of the biggest things is Kawasaki don't race in any other championship. This is where they put their resources. If you're the team that's got the most money, that's got the arguably the the best crop of engineers because you're able to spend the most money you're able to hire a rider like jonathan ray that's going to go down as the best rider in world superbike history you probably should keep winning races you know and i think that it's one of those instances where we've had it in every series we had it with mcdoom we had it with rossu we've had it arguably with mark marquez over the last few years where you know you know going into most races or most championships 
that Marquez is probably going to get to the end of a MotoGP season and in all likelihood either be the world champion or it's going to come down to a couple of points at the end of the season. You know that he's going to be consistent. The biggest thing is Jonathan hasn't had those toe-to-toe battles that Marquez has had. You know, it's been a lot more like the doing years where, you know, you can drive away some fans just because of that dominance. I personally think if you were to sit down and look at World Superbike races over the last four or five years, the racing's actually been genuinely very good. It's just one of those things where, as you said, gents, you go into each race wondering, is anyone going to stop Ray? That's never a good thing for a championship. But I think that for World SBK, it's really close to getting to the point where there's going to be a lot of riders taking that fight too, Ray. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And looking, you know, on the production side again, um, there does seem to be a lot of indication from the OEMs that we're going to see a real split in what is, you know, a street bike. I mean, they're all street bikes, but what's going to be like the street bike for the masses and then the homologation special. There's a lot of indications that we'll see an 1100cc Aprilia RSV4 for the 2019 model year. We already saw Ducati make that split with Fitz V4 where you have an 1103cc you know, street bike for the masses. There will be a 1000cc version that comes out this year. That'll be the homologation bike. There's some indications that Honda might be doing the same thing with its superbike program. We're seeing that to some extent with uh, Kawasaki in the super sport level. Uh, I think we're going to see a couple other manufacturers follow them in that route as well. So there are some interesting kind of technical things uh, on the production side that could make teams and OEMs um, more competitive in the future, more at the pointy end of the stick and not having to make those compromises between uh, a production bike that they're selling to consumers and a race bike that they're selling to race teams for for competition. And maybe that helps kind of shuffle the deck a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's a good point, Jensen. If you look at Kawasaki over the course of the last couple of years, they brought out the ZX-10R, then they brought out the ZX-10RR, and now they're actually going to bring out another homologation special for next year. It's not going to be a new bike. It's just going to be an upgrade, but it's going to be something that just changes the weight distribution a little bit. It changes a little bit of the engine just to allow them to have a little bit more of a performance advantage within World SBK and other Superbike Championships. And that seems to be the model, as you said, that most of these manufacturers will end up going down. Ducati's got a brand new V4. They'll definitely have something like that. We've heard, as you mentioned earlier in the show about Honda, potentially having an upgrade to the Fireblade. It's not going to be a whole new bike, but it could be enough that gives them that little bit of a step in World SBK as well. Yeah, I guess we're going to have to wait and see. The first uh, trade show will be in October at Intermont, followed up by ICMA in November. There's some things slated for uh, debut in the United States at the AIM Expo. So there's there's a number of trade shows coming up where we are going to get a glimpse of um, what the racing platforms will be for next year, truthfully. So it'll be interesting, interesting to see uh, which brands have what. Um, going into going into next year steve i think that's all we have to talk about for today though i think i want to wrap things up and and get out the door 
So I will say thank you very much for joining me today, Steve, talking a little superbike. Yeah, it's been good to be back with you, gents. And uh, luckily, uh, we've got the Portimao test coming up as well for World SBK. So not too long until those World Superbikes are back out on track as well then with the Portimao Superbike round in a few weeks' time as well. Yeah, yeah. And I know next week we'll have a MotoGP show from Silverstone. So we've got a lot of great content coming your way dear listener until then make sure that you are following us on social media that is facebook.com slash paddock pass podcast on twitter we are at paddock pass pod whatever podcasting application or service that you use please make sure that you've left us a rating and review we appreciate the feedback we love hearing how much you love the show And of course, it also helps other listeners find the Paddock Pass podcast and get their two-wheeled racing fix. So that's very, very important. Steve, until next time, good talk, and I'll see you out there, bud. Thanks very much, gents. It's almost like I should be doing it for a living, gents.